0: Good morning, church. Please turn in your copy of God's Word one more time to the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 10. This morning we're going to look at verses 9 through the end of the chapter. That does go all the way to verse 44. We do have a long list of names in there, but we are going to cover that this morning. If you'll read along with me now, remembering that every... Word we read this morning is, in fact, the words of God. Ezra chapter 10, verse 9. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month, on the twentieth day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and have married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land, And from foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice. It is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many. And it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open. Nor is this a task for one day or for two. We have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly, and let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikva, opposed this, and Meshullam and Shabbatai the Levites, supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. And on the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married Foreign women. Now there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women: Maasea, Eliezer, Jarib, Gedaliah, some of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brothers. They pledged themselves to put away their wives, and their guilt offering was a ram from the flock for their guilt. Of the sons of Emmer, Hanani, and Zebadiah, of the sons of Haram, Maaseah, Elijah, Shemaiah, Jehiel, and Uzziah. Of the sons of Pasher, Elioani, Maaseah, Ishmael, Nathanael, Josabad, and Elisa. Of the Levites, Josabad, Shimei, Keleah that is Kelita, Pethahiah, Judah, and Eliezer. Of the singers, Eliashib. Of the gatekeepers, Shalom, Tellum, and Uri, And of Israel. Of the sons of Parash, Ramiah, Isaiah, Malchijah, Midjamin, Elisar, Hashabiah, and Baneah. Of the sons of Elam, Mataniah, Zachariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah. Of the sons of Zatu, Elioani. Eliashib, Mathaniah, Jeremoth, Zabad, and Aziza, And of the sons of Bibai were Jehohanan, Mananiah, Zabai, and Athli. Of the sons of Bani were Meshulam, Maluk, Adiah, Jashub, Sheel, and Jeremoth. Of the sons of Pehath-Moab, Adna, Chalal, Benaiah, Maaseah, Mataniah, Bezalelel, Binuai, and Manasseh, of the sons of Harem, Eliezer, Eshijah, Malkijah, Shemaiah, Shimeon, Benjamin, Maluch, and Shemariah, of the sons of Hashem, Matani, Matata, Zabad, Eliphalet, Jeremiah, Manasseh and Shimeah, of the sons of Bani, Meadai, Amram, Uel, Benea, Bedea, Cheluhai, Vaniah, Meramoth, Eliashib, Mataniah, Matani, Jeasu, of the sons of Benui, Shimei, Shelemiah, Nathan, Adaiah, Machnadebi, Sheshai, Sherai, Azarel, Shelemiah, Shammariah, Shalem, Amariah, and Joseph, of the sons of Nebo, Jael, Mattathiah, Zabad, Zabina, Jedi, Joel, and Benaiah. All of these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even borne children. And that was the conclusion of the reading of God's Word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We should offer to rotate men for the scripture reading before the sermon occasionally. Maybe I can get some volunteers on some of these harder mornings. Well, I'm going to begin this morning's sermon with two brief admittances. The first is that due to the fact that our family has been reading through the Lord of the Rings trilogy since... Early February of 2022, the congregation has been subject to a higher-than-average frequency of references and illustrations from Tolkien's epic. I assure you that each was heartily intended to amplify the sermon text from that morning. Some of you Loader fans out there are like ravenous wolves. It wouldn't matter how many times I quoted it. You're like, no way, man, give me more. The second thing that I have to say this morning, and some of you have already guessed this, is that I'm going to open this morning's sermon with another excerpt from The War of the Ring. In full disclosure, last Sunday night, as we were finishing our cleanup duties, I concluded the reading of the trilogy with the children, and uh, that's why it's on my mind recently. Um, As always, I will say that I've done my best to prevent any major spoilers. Well, at the conclusion of the trilogy, the four hobbits who set out as part of the Fellowship of the Ring return to the Shire, having said goodbye to many of the friends that they've made along the way. Before they completely reach their destination, word reaches them that their homeland might not be in quite the same shape that it was when they set out over a year prior. Their talks of cut down trees and uprooted gardens, emerald pastures replaced by factories and smoking mills, etc. Though the great evil of the world, the one ring and its ruler, have been done away with, there's unfortunately still work to do. The good news is that the halflings are not quite who they were when they left to begin their journey. Combat, trial, the council of wise companions met along the way and enduring through the most challenging of circumstances have made them all a quite... ...different kind of hobbit. Gandalf gives an adequate summary. He says, you, speaking the hobbits... ...must settle the shire's affairs yourselves. That is what you have been trained for. Do you not yet understand? My time is over. It is no longer my task to set things right... ...nor to help folk to do so. And as for you, my dear friends... You won't need my help. You are grown up now, grown indeed very high. Among the great you are, and I have no longer any fear at all for any of you. Well, in this morning's text, the group of exiles come forward, every man to the last man. And they're here to set right the wrong of the intermarriage with the nations. Now, I mentioned last week that those who came out of Babylon still have some Babylon left inside of them. And yet, in last week's text, Shechaniah says, but there's still hope for us. Brethren, we in the new covenant, I'm here to tell you today, have something even better than hope. We have received the third member of the Trinity, God himself, the Holy Spirit, to abide with us, that we can together, as a congregation, as God designed us, fight our sin and be victorious in our sin. This isn't your daddy's old covenant anymore. Though in your own eyes, you might not feel like you amount to anything. You might feel like a little halfling. The reality is that you in Christ Jesus, have actually been set very high, Paul says, in the heavenly places. Right now, present tense. So will you allow your remaining sin to still have dominion over you? Well, I think that's the main question that we have to address in our text this morning. Look with me now at verses 9 to 11. This First brief section. You remember in last week's text that Ezra had given the exiles three days to appear in Jerusalem for the official instructions on what is to be done about these intermarriages. In verse 9 we read that everyone did indeed come. This event took place in the Jewish month of Kislev, which is equivalent to mid-December sometime. It actually overlaps November a little bit, but this the 20th of the month would be sometime around our mid-December. And what do you know? It's pouring rain. I don't think this would have surprised the exiles at all. They're agrarians. They live in an agriculturalist society. And so they know that midwinter in Palestine means cold and rain. And yet, here they are in the courtyard, trembling all together, huddled, waiting for Ezra to speak... Because dealing with this sin cannot wait. It has to be dealt with now. I wonder if you notice the strong typology of this moment. Remember a time in the scriptures when God judged people for their sins. And it was accompanied by heavy rain. You'll remember the flood narrative you can wonder how much of that might play into the emotion of this moment, the complexity of what these people might be thinking. God drenching them as they're coming to him to seek mercy. You know that there were those who surely tried to get on the ark after the floodwaters came, clawing, scratching at the boat, but God's judgment prevented them from entering and escaping their doom, would these exiles be able to escape their current condition under, as Ezra described it, the wrath of God? The public address from Ezra that follows is accordingly for the situation. It's pouring rain. It's very brief. It's just over 40 words in your ESV translation. But it packs a punch. And Ezra essentially says three things to the exiles. He says, you all broke the covenant. You all sinned in these foreign marriages. Now we are all loaded with guilt. Now I wonder if you notice the plurality that runs throughout that charge from Ezra. Also notice that Ezra isn't identifying with the sin of the people at this point. When he was... Being an intercessor for them, he was identifying with the sin. We, Lord, have sinned before you. But now, he says, no, you are the ones who have broken faith. And now we are the ones who have been laden with guilt. It's time for the rebuke. The hard words have to land in the gut of those to whom they are responsible. And it's interesting to me that growing up, especially in my teenage and young adult years... I never heard pastors, or any other Christian for that matter, speak directly to my sin quite like Ezra's doing here. It was always that squishy, Brother, we all sin. You know I've sinned like that before. Let me tell you a story about when I sinned like that. I wonder what a a pastor or a counselor would do when someone's confessing their pedophilic fantasies. I'm afraid that there are some who actually can identify with those wicked sins. Brethren, you need leaders who are going to tell you like it is. When you come in for pastoral counseling, Jeremy, Daniel, or myself and any other leader here shouldn't beat around the bush. We need to hear your story and any pertinent eyewitness testimony that may accompany it and then get right to the point We've got to deal with this sin. This is a general rule among men, but I want you to pay attention to word count in situations like this. Yes, I'm putting your pastors behind the eight ball right now. If you've done wrong, you need to know what the wrong is and how to fix it. And verbosity does not equal clarity. It's usually the opposite. It usually just muddies the waters. In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, says Proverbs 19. But he who restrains his lips is wise. This goes for the saints too. I'm not just talking about leadership here. Many of you are known for wise counsel and you offer it freely and gladly when asked for. You may hear that you even have a gift in helping people in these difficult situations. Don't abuse it by pontificating ad nauseum. Ezra doesn't mince words. In verse 10, here's the problem. In verse 11, solution. He gets right to it. Confess your sin to God, he says. Turn away from your sin and obey God. Three things. Very simple. You can even start to sense the gospel here. Confess your sin to God, turn away from your sin, and obey God. Now what kind of solution is that for these people? What what does that do for Israel? How does that help them in this moment? It gives them one thing. It gives them the hope that Shekaniah talked about last week. There's hope if we will turn and we'll come back to God and we will start obeying Him. We have a hope. We know this God that we serve and he said in Deuteronomy that he's a merciful God. And if we come back to him and we do what he says and we show contrition, maybe, just maybe, he'll stay his hand. But they've got to come in and they've got to vomit this sin up. And they've got to do that before a holy God, one whose holiness burns bright enough to consume them even while they speak. This hope is one that in forsaking their sin and turning from it, not being like the dog that returns to the vomit, but the son who repents of the pig slop bucket that he's been eating out of. A hope that, that in walking back to the father, in accordance with his will, that that God will show mercy. Of course, you see the strong parallel of the cross here. Confession, repentance... And obedience for the Christian life, these three still give us hope. But I want to say something. There's perhaps some discontinuity here that we should talk about. And I'm not just talking about gospel discontinuity. We're going to get into that. But I want to talk about this word hope. You see, in the New Covenant, we don't have a hope that God will be merciful. No longer do Christians have a hope that God will be merciful to us we have a promise that He will be merciful to us. We have His Word, the Word of the God who does not change. We have His Word that when we turn in repentance and faith, He will show mercy. It's not hope. It's a promise. When it comes to God's mercy, today, for Christians, hope isn't the issue anymore. Through the effectual sacrifice of Christ... For the sins of his people, we don't hope he will be merciful. We are sure of it. And there's a word for that. Biblically speaking, we call that faith. We call that faith. And yes, faith and hope are two different things. Hear the writer of Hebrews. He says, now faith is the assurance of what is hoped for. Faith is the assurance of what is hoped for. Notice he does not say that faith is hope. It's not the same thing. Faith is a bedrock, grounded assurance of what you did hope for. I no longer hope for it. I'm positive of it. I am assured of it. It's not wishful thinking. The word assurance in Hebrews 11 comes from the Greek word hoopostasis, and it's construction language. It's builder language. It literally means the thing underneath everything else. What's underneath it all? that, That assurance? It's faith. When you build a house after you site prep, the first truck to pull up on the job site is the concrete truck. That's when the firmament Is laid, the surety that when this house is done, it ain't going nowhere. They lay down this thing, the cornerstone of the house, the bedrock of the house, and that's the thing underneath everything else. When the framers show up to the job site, they don't walk around aimlessly looking at their lumber pile and saying dumbly to each other, Now this goes where? You know, it goes right on the foundation. That's what it's made for. That's where we build the house. Biblical faith is the thing underneath everything else for the Christian. It's not hope anymore. It's not maybe. It's I'm sure of it. It's firm. It stands fast. Eugene Peterson once said, Faith is not a precarious experience of chance. It is a solid, massive experience of God. Paul says as much in Ephesians chapter 2. He says that faith is the gift directly from the hands of God. No matter what anyone tells you about your choice for Christ, and make no mistake, you do have to choose Christ. But at the moment of your expression of faith in Jesus and in his substitutionary atonement for your sin, you are manifesting something by which you have been given. God gave it to you, put it in your heart. You're manifesting the gift of God, the assurance of what you hoped for. I don't know, there was a day when I was wondering, will I be saved? No, I will be saved because Jesus died for me. I am sure of it. It's the gift of faith. But someone will ask, so what changed from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant? How did we go from from hope to faith? How come Ezra commanded the people of God to hope in God's mercy, and then they did works after their confession and repentance to maybe up the ante a little bit? How come the Old Testament saints had to try and work for their salvation in a sense... And in the New Covenant, works no longer save us. Well, the first question I'd ask you is, who told you works don't save you? Who told you that? What do you mean you're not saved by works? Of course you are. God planned from the very beginning that all mankind would be saved by good works. The central question of the gospel Is not, how do I choose faith over works? The central question of the gospel is, where can I find works sufficient for my faith? Whose whose works would give me that kind of assurance that no matter what I bring before the table, the throne room of heaven, the bar of God, he will never find anything that could eclipse those good works on my behalf. Where do I find faith like that? You are saved by works, beloved, just not your works. In order to be reconciled to God and get into heaven, you and I need not just a cleansing from sin, we need a perfect righteousness by which we can stand before our holy God. And this perfect righteousness is found in the person and work of our Savior Jesus Christ. Through his sufficient atonement, by dying on the cross, often called, in theological terms, his passive obedience. No, it doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't active on the cross, but he was receiving the work of others. He was passively receiving our works. That's why it's called his passive obedience. He made purification from the heinous sins of the most heinous people in the world. And through his flawlessly lived life while on earth. This is called his active obedience. This is what he did to attain righteousness for us. He won for his people the merit that they needed to be made right before God. Now, consider this point of application. Christian, you who perhaps today are in great but secret sin against the Lord. I can tell you right now with 100% assurance that if you turn from your whoring after your secret sins as a man might a foreign woman that he unlawfully married, if you confess your sins to God and to others in this body, trusting that God intends through the local church to help you fight your sin, and if you have faith in Christ on behalf of your sin, that in Him it has been fully and completely paid for, and that no matter how much sin still remains in you after that point, you stand before the bar of God now clothed in peerless righteousness, and if you move forward in obedience to God through that bedrock of assurance in all that Jesus did for you, then today you can live victoriously over your sin and please God. You can, today. Ezra and his community of exiles could only hope in that kind of thing. But for you in the New Covenant community, this is a reality. This is the Christian life. This is what Jesus won for us. This is the promised land. Milk and honey flowing everywhere. This is our reward in Christ. All that he's laid up for us. Now look with me at the next section. Verses 12-17. through If we're honest with ourselves, we know that the process of learning to consistently resist our sin and walk in obedience to Christ is not a microwave recipe. There's no popcorn button for fast-tracking victory over most of your sins. Additionally, let me say this, it is rare that God confronts us in our sin... In what we might call an opportune moment. Thank you, Lord. I needed to know about the sin. You picked the perfect time to reveal it to me. Nothing's going on. I've got time to meditate on this and think about it. The kids are perfectly well behaved. My wife's not mad at me for my bad behavior. This is so great, Lord. Thank you. Yeah, you don't want to hear about your sin when you're living victoriously. You want to ride the wave. And you certainly don't want to hear about it when you're at rock bottom. We never want to hear about our sin. This is to say that seasons of repentance are rarely seasons of convenience. Seasons of repentance are rarely seasons of convenience. And that's just what you see in the reply to Ezra here from these poor beloved Old Testament saints. They're out there in the middle of the rain. They're shivering. They're terrified of the wrath of God. And then briefly, to summarize what is said in verses 12 to 17, there's an almost total congregational agreement with Ezra that they should confess, repent, and obey. That's what Ezra commanded. And there's almost unanimous agreement that that's what they should do. There are a few contrarians mentioned down in verse 15. You can let your eyes drip down there briefly. There's no detail given for why these people object to what is said and I've heard many commentators reading, trying to think through this passage. They said, verse 15 of Ezra chapter 10 is the hardest chapter to interpret in the whole book. In Ezra, that's the hardest verse to interpret is verse 15 of chapter 10 right there. Because you don't know which way to go. They said, no, I disagree. Okay, so you disagree. On what grounds do you disagree? Do you disagree because you've got foreign wives and you don't want to put them away? You don't want to get kicked out of the covenant community either? You want the best of both worlds? Or these men are about to come and say, hey, we need, to, we need to be reasonable about this and we need to take our time. No, we need to do it now. Everybody, right now, get your wives out of here. Go on. You see, there's two different options. Like, what, why are they disagreeing? One of them's a Levite, so maybe there was some zeal there. I don't, we don't know. But whichever way you take it, the bulk of the people. Say literally in English, Yes, as your words to us do. That's what the Hebrew is rendered literally in English. Yes, as your words to us do. In verse 13, however, the people give what appears to be a challenge to the authority of the leaders, they want to hit the brakes. They give three reasons for this. And I'll give them to you in three Ps. Precipitation, population, and the Pentateuch. Precipitation, population, and the Pentateuch. And those are some substantial factors. However, whenever obedience is requested, especially by God, any reply that starts with, but... It's okay to be suspect. At home, we've always told our children that their obedience to their parents is true obedience to their parents and to God when it is done without challenge, excuse, or delay. And you got to have a happy attitude. Some zealous, pious soul could respond to the excuses of these men. Maybe it was those in verse 15 saying, Who cares? Repent. Get rid of your own foreign wife. Let everyone else get rid of theirs. If everyone minds their own business and does what they're supposed to do, we'll all get right before God. Now I'd remind you of what we talked about last week. That this is unfortunately the way the world has taught us to think. Like individuals with the option to overnight whatever progress we want to make in the Christian life. Don't hear me preaching from Ezra that you can take your time with your sin. There's no rush. These things are complicated. God understands how hard your life must be right now. You've been a victim in the past. Don't hear me saying any of that. Those sorts of thoughts are satanic. It's a dumpster fire. It's no good for you. At the same time, on the other hand, we have to be realistic. Fighting sin does take time. Hear the exiles out. They say, Ezra, if we're going to do this by the book, this isn't a one or two day problem. The transgression was great. There should be an expectation that the resolution is going to be pretty significant too. In verse 14, they ask for appointed times to speak with the officials to hear those cases. Which, as it turns out, this is what was interesting for me. As I studied this week. Was not an attempt to avoid obedience to the Torah. But to actually ensure that everyone was completely obedient to the Torah. In a case law situation... Where accusation is made and names are officially given before judges, the law required a trial in which witnesses were called and evidence was examined and each case was handled in such a way that the accused received the maximum amount of protection until they were proven beyond reasonable doubt to be guilty. You don't want your name up here in this list. ...for the rest of the Jews to see. And now I have to read through it on a Sunday morning, right? And all these names are in here. These poor fellows. But how did they get in here? It's because there was a trial. They went through the process and it was confirmed. This man has a woman that he shouldn't have. He must put her away. This man and so on and so forth down the line. The exiles were asking in a sense for what Shekinah was asking for back in verse 3... Of this chapter. Let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children and let it be done according to the law. Let's do it by the book. Let's do it the right way. Matthew Henry said on this passage take the time to do it right and you will have it done the sooner. Whereas if you do it in a hurry, you shall have it done by halves. How true that is in our lives especially in dealing with sin. Okay, let me just take a deep breath. I'm angry at my kids. Deep breath. Okay, back in. No. Uh, Daddy may need to take a break. You know, daddy go to your room and pray for a little while. Mommy can handle the kids for a few minutes, okay? Do it right. Slow down. Make sure you're doing it by the book. You see in verses 16 and 17 that this is exactly what they ended up doing. They started in January And the trials were completed by essentially the 1st of April, if we look at the Jewish calendar. It took about three months, which, you want to know how slow it went? That's less than two cases dealt with per day. They went slow. This was a time-consuming process. Now, there are some of you that even with that timeline would love a guarantee that in three months' time, the sin that you're currently struggling with and thinking of You could be done with. Oh, you told me in three months I followed this blueprint and this plan I could be done with my sin. Please, sign me up. Now sometimes God does act in a way where he he moves quickly on our behalf to rid us of a certain sin that's been besetting us. I mentioned before that before my conversion I was given virulently to the sin of lust. I was sick and I couldn't fight it. And when God saved me, He also delivered me dramatically from temptation to that specific sin. I just wasn't given to it in the same way anymore. It was one of those moments where God stepped in in a powerful way. But you know that it often takes years of fighting for many men in that issue and with that particular sin, it takes years of fighting. It it may take that long because we're interested in carrying that nasty looking cross by ourselves and we don't want to let the rest of our brothers and sisters in Christ and the church help us. I don't want accountability. It's too ugly. This sin's too gross. You don't want to look at me when I'm like that. It'll make you uncomfortable. Makes me uncomfortable. Nah, I can handle it. What's important for you to see here is that the exiles are initiating the process through confession and repentance and then endeavoring to move forward with obedience. And then they go forward with accountability to make sure that nobody jumps ship along the way. Now here's our takeaway, beloved. We need the body of Christ, the church, to fight sin. That's clear in verse 12, right there in front of you. Yes, we're going to do this, but let's do it by the book. Let's all do it together. There's just no wiggling out of it. Drop your pride and seek counsel and accountability from others here who can help you fight. Tell somebody about it today. Who's your Sam Gamgee? Who's been fighting here and can fight alongside of you? Who do you trust to carry you up the mountain of God to help you drop your sin? Find that person and get on with it. Recognize that your fight with sin is likely going to amount to a long obedience in the same direction. I'm going to fight it today and then I'm going to get up tomorrow and I'm going to fight it again tomorrow and I'm going to fight it again and again because holiness is not prime eligible. It's not. It takes time, but it does work every single time so long as the sinner remains humble in pursuit and continually repenting along the way. And that's your posture here. Pastor Matt Hudson at Basswood used to tell me all the time that it is sin to give in to sin, but it is not sin to fight sin. Good words. Good words. Trust and submit to your church leadership. You see, that's what they did here. They came forward and they said, Ezra, we want to do this. Let's do it right. Do it by the book. And we'll submit, you, we'll submit to you and the judges you appoint. Whatever you're going to do, we're going to submit to the ruling. They handed the matter over and they put their faith in God and in the men that he had appointed. I know it's pretty foreign for some of you to think about submitting to pastoral authority. I said last week that your elders don't take that lightly at all. I often find myself in a discipline situation with a child saying the same things over and over and over again. When our children were young... (coughs) One of those oft-repeated phrases was something we heard from Ted Tripp. God has given you a mommy and daddy that you can trust. God has given you a mommy and daddy that you can trust. Beloved, I know the two men with whom I serve. I can say unreservedly that I myself entrust my life to their pastoral authority over me. Without reservation. If they say, Chris... We think that you should handle this situation this way or do this. I say, okay, I'm going to start right now. Because it's God's will for my life to trust the authority that he set over me. That's why it takes time to go through the membership process at Christ the King. You want to examine your pastors. Is this the place where my family will grow? Are these men that I can trust? Are they control freaks or are they shepherds? Are they humble? Or are they lawdy? Who are they? I'm going to covenant with them because these are men that I can trust. And I can tell you that I found that to be the case with the brothers, certainly, that I serve with. Well, we're going to look now at the last section here, verses 18 through 44. No, we're not going to go through every single one of the list of names, but there are some good things here in the text for us. Notice in verse 18 that the priests are mentioned first. Neither ancestry nor office shielded anyone from falling in to this mixture with the nations. And the same thing was going on in Jesus' day. He told the religious leaders of his day, Assuredly, I say to you, tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you do. Even though the priests make up 10% of the returned exiles, we learned that back from Ezra chapter 7 and 8, According to this list, they're making up 15% of those in the wrong. The priesthood. 15% of the offenders are levitical in their ancestry and belong to the priesthood. You can hear the weight of the words from chapter 2 where or excuse me chapter 9 verse 2 where the leaders of the community are listed as foremost in the sin. In verse 19, the people literally give their hands, it's likely a handshake or something similar, and pledge to divorce these women. As a means of solidifying that pledge, they brought a guilt offering, which more details on the guilt offering can be found in Leviticus chapter 5. Here's something that's really interesting about the guilt offering. It was usually offered for unintentional sins. Now they could have offered a sin offering. Okay, I know I've done something wrong. I know what my sin is. I'm offering a sin offering. But the Bible says they offered guilt offerings. It's not impossible that though these men were the priests, I know, you have one job, dude. This is your only job. They were not committed to studying and teaching the Torah, not like Ezra was. This is, after all, one of the main reasons that Ezra was sent back. We learned about that at the end of chapter 7. From verses 25 to 43, you have the names of Israelite households. So these are the offenders who are not in some way connected to the tribe of Levi or the temple service. And among those names, nine of the 33 families or town groups mentioned back in Ezra 2 are also listed here. So less than a third of those who initially came back with Zerubbabel have broken the law. Now that might sound like a win. But you know how sin is. It's like mold. You leave it alone. It grows over time. It only took one guy to cast his eye on one of those women and say, you know what? I can't remember anything in the Torah about marrying foreign women. Can you? No, not really. Okay, that girl's mine. It took one guy. And now 30% of the congregation or more is dealing with this sin. So as we close this morning... How do we apply a portion of scripture like this? What do we say as we conclude the book of Ezra? I take warning as a pastor from a text like this that in a platform of leadership, Daniel said something in his charge like this to David this morning, in a platform of leadership, temptation to sin can come more frequently. Strike the shepherd. The sheep will be scattered. Zechariah 13. I also take from this text that you can sin unintentionally against God. And you should still take it seriously. Oh, I didn't mean to. Is it sin? I didn't mean to, but is it sin? It's been a while since you studied about how you take your Christian liberties in front of other believers, but then you learn that you hurt someone's conscience because of your freedom with regards to maybe alcohol, or the TV shows you watch, or what you say in front of other people. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. Was it sin? Did you walk over someone else's conscience? Did you shred them because of your liberties that you were flaunting? It may have seemed unintentional, but sin grows over time, It matters how you deal with that situation as the Israelites here had to deal with your sin now even if it takes a long time to be completely rid of it. And this last point is one that I want to spend a little time on. Earlier in the sermon, I spoke about faith being the bedrock or foundation of our new life in Christ. As Reformed Christians, we are sola fide. That means that we believe That the atonement of Jesus alone, the atonement of Jesus alone is sufficient to redeem us from sin, and that the righteousness of Christ is applied to our lives by the Spirit of God through the gift of faith, which is a gift of God. What I'm about to say, no matter how I try and say it, is going to put my sola bona fides to the test. I will not recant, nor can I recant, of being a Christian who believes that the good news of Jesus is that we are saved through faith in Jesus alone. Again, it is faith in Christ alone that saves us. However popular that truth may be in many churches today, and I hope you sense it's popular here, it does leave an open question. What place do works have in the life of the Christian listen to Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 strive the writer of Hebrew says strive work endeavor put forth effort for peace with everyone and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord hmm that sounds like working James 4.26 For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. 1 John 2.14 Whoever says, I know him. That's my confession. I know him. Y'all want to know why we do communion the way that we do? Because whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Well, how do we know that we know him? John says in chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love, no matter what he testifies. I tell you, I remember the day it got it written in my Bible. I remember the feeling when I came out of the water. I was so full of joy in life. I went out evangelizing and all this stuff. Whoever does not love abides in death. Now there are dozens of other times this subject is addressed in the New Testament. Pastor John Piper sums up the teaching of Scripture well... when he says, "...works play no role whatsoever in our justification. But they are the necessary fruit of justifying faith... Which confirms our faith and our union with Christ at the last judgment. Now think about that for just a minute. Works play no role whatsoever in justification. But when you stand before the bar of God, what did Jesus say you would be judged by? Your works. Well, that doesn't make any sense. It's because a real faith that God really puts into you, that God gives you as a gift will be exercised outwardly through the manifestation of good works. That's biblical faith. It is accompanied by works. So that's why we can look at a text like this from Ezra and say confession, repentance, obedience. Amen. I want to confess my sin to God. I want to repent and I want to start being obedient. And we don't have a hope. We've got an assurance that God is for us. What... What Piper says in this quote is that faith is the instrument by which you are saved. The only instrument, mind you. But it is not the basis on which you will be saved. In the courtroom of heaven, you will be judged by the evidence or fruit of your faith, which is the works. Revelation 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what each had done. J.C. Ryle once said, these are strong words coming from our Anglican brother. J.C. Ryle once said, Obedience is the only reality. It is faith visible. It is faith acting. It is faith manifest. It is the test of real discipleship among the Lord's people. And amen. It's not just a confession, it's not a statement or a raised hand or a prayer or walking an altar, or that big, tremendous experience you had. Faith, we're told in the New Testament, works itself out through love. That's the living faith. That's the active faith. Now, why is this important for us to see as we conclude Ezra? I mean, you've got this long list of names here. And you notice that the list ends abruptly. There's no more Ezra at the end of that. Some of these women had had children. Boom, that's it. Moving on, Nehemiah. These two were originally combined into one book, and it's likely that they share the same author. Ezra could have written Nehemiah for him. They were contemporaries of one another. The question, though, of so what happened is left open. And that's the question that I would like to conclude this morning's sermon by asking you. Will you take seriously the Scripture's teaching that though you may have had any number of religious experiences, the real living faith given by God will manifest the fruit of righteousness? Or else, the writer of Hebrews says, you won't see the Lord. No, I'm not saying that you have to be perfect. And no, don't you dare for a minute take your eyes off of Christ so you can amount some a mass of things that you think will actually merit you jack before God. Don't take your eyes off of Christ for a minute. You may spend the rest of your life sinning on a daily basis. But do you confess it to God and others here? Do you repent of it? Do you hate it? Do you turn from it? Are you willing to divorce it? And do you instead try to do what God commands? Do you find that God is helping you progress even if this sin battle has taken time? If you're not progressing, I would ask you to evaluate, are you involving the rest of the church? The book of Ezra begins with a God who is completely in control. Maneuvering the heart of great kings however he chooses. He does this because he is and has always been seeking to build a kingdom for his son. And he chooses to use us, fallen us, broken us, still wrestling with our sin. Beloved, you're going to have moments like when the hobbits, after their long journey to destroy the ring... You think that the journey's over, but it's not. And you must take immediate action. So let's get to work. That's where the story goes. Here's the offenders. Get to work. Because the true faith which God has been building in you works. Faith works. Brothers and sisters, if your sin is still clinging to you like a foreign and forbidden woman, if you know the names, if you know that your name is on a list of those who would not be right before God today, what are you going to do about it? It is time, as those who confess faith in Christ, that we go to war together and finally beat these sins. Jesus, we need your help. We confess to you that we are not enough for the great task. That is set before us. But. We have more than a hope in you. We have assurance in your word. The very promises of God. Which never fail. We have assurance. That in looking to Christ. Confessing to him. Repenting. Working with our brothers and sisters here. To fight sin. That it can be overcome. And we can put it away. Along with all its little sins that have been bred inside of us. You can help us to live victoriously. We know that we'll always be repenting, but we want to trust you for greater things. We don't want, like Nehemiah will, in about 13 years from this time, receive word that Jerusalem is back in shambles again. Lord, you've given us an opportunity since 2020 To begin a new work and to strive for holiness. Please help us clearly to see Jesus. To love him and to pursue him with all of our might. And be victorious, Christ. Be victorious as we know that you will. Father, we pray these things in the name of your beloved son, Jesus. Amen.